For decades, this company called Gelman Sciences was manufacturing medical filters in the Ann Arbor area using dioxane, a highly toxic chemical. Then in 1985, dioxane was discovered in drinking water wells in the area. Last month, the US EPA announced that the Gelman contaminated site is a candidate for the national priorities list, which means it's eligible to become what we call a Superfund. Translation, Ann Arbor could be the center of a massive cleanup orchestrated by the EPA. Today, we're going to bring you an overview of the Gelman plume, the research that's happening now, and what becoming a Superfund site means. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Brian Steglitz is the Public Services Area Administrator for the City of Ann Arbor. Welcome. It's good to have you. Thank you. And Professor Bill Schuster is here, too. He's chair of the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Wayne State, which has researched several aspects of the contamination at Gelman. Hi, Bill. Oh, thanks so much. Brian Steglitz, I want to start with you. The story has been told many times how there was a graduate student from the U of M named Dan Bicknell who was swimming with friends in one of Ann Arbor's West Side Lakes when he got to wondering about some unregulated water discharges. He later took some water samples and found that the discharges were indeed very dangerous. Can you give some context for when that happened and just how long the city has been trying to get the situation dealt with? Definitely goes back many decades, and it's been just an evolving issue for the community. We, we continue to learn a lot. I think it's one of the most sampled and tested plumes, for sure, in the state of Michigan, but maybe even in the country. But it's been, it's been many, many, many years. Right. Bill Schuster, what do we know about the nature of the contamination from Gelman? I wonder if, if there's anything that you would say to put this in the context of some of the other major contaminations that are part of the national priorities list right now, basically how Gelman stacks up. Well, it stacks up pretty high, and that's it's due to the fact that this is 1,4-dioxane. It's a compound that actually belongs to the class of chemicals known as ethers. And it's got all the best attributes for making our lives very difficult because it, it spreads very quickly uh, once it mixes with water very easily. And so when the actual contaminant, the 1,4-dioxane, hits the groundwater table, it becomes basically like a freeway for the contaminant to move across geographic and political boundaries relatively quickly. Bill, do we know much about harms that may have already happened as as a part of the Gelman contamination? I don't know that I could speak to that to any great extent, except that Ann Arbor may be using groundwater as feedstock for, for drinking water. But at this point, just getting a grip on the plume itself and its extent and geometry has been an important part of the process and, and certainly a requisite step in the process to get it listed on the national priority list. Brian Steglitz, how would you describe the, the concern over what this can do to Ann Arbor's water supply or maybe has already done? Yeah, well, that's obviously our, our main focus. Um, we had a well that we have detected 1,4-dioxane in. Um, this goes back probably 20, over 20 years now, um, and we haven't had access to that well since that time. So it has impacted our groundwater supply. Fortunately, 
our drinking water supply in Ann Arbor is blended from both the groundwater source and a surface water source. So we have some additional reliability in that um, respect. Right now, our biggest concern is the migration of the plume towards the Huron River upstream of our intake. And that's where we're primarily focused and ensuring that the Huron River doesn't get impacted by the migration of dioxane, because then that would jeopardize the majority of our water supply, which is about 80% that comes from the Huron. Brian, I'm about to ask a question that could have an extremely long answer, because there have been lawsuits upon lawsuits and regulatory action on regulatory action after this. But can you help folks understand how did we get to this place where federal recognition is in the cards? Um, you're right. That is potentially a long answer. I'll try to be as brief. Um, I will share that there's a lot of information available on this on the web. The city of Ann Arbor has a website which has a lot of the history, but also the state of Michigan, who has been the responsible party for overseeing the cleanup historically until this point. So yes, you're correct. There has been litigation. The regulations have changed over time. So the targets and cleanup limits have changed. Um, so it's been a dynamic issue for you know the past probably 20 to 30 years. You know, the situation we're in right now, there's also a, a large sort of activist community who is very passionate about this site and the cleanup of the site and the impact on not just the city's water supply, but there's many residential um, homes who have had impacts on their residential water supply because there's a, a lot of folks in Sayo Township, for example, who are not part of city water, who tap into the groundwater for their water supply and their you know wells have been contaminated you know again a lot of grassroots um, work around this site and also advocating for a more aggressive cleanup obviously with any anything like this there's sort of that dynamic tension between the community who wants to get this cleaned up um, as soon as possible but we know it's very costly and the responsible party may not be driven by the same incentives to rapidly remediate the situation so Hence, sort of the need for a regulatory agency like the state of Michigan to get involved to manage that and come up with what, from their perspective, is appropriate. And I think what's driven this to go towards the national priorities list and for the federal government to come and take over is just the lack of satisfaction at the local level with the speed and the progress the state has been making in overseeing the cleanup of this site. And just to be clear, Eagle, the state office overseeing this environmental cleanup, has been overseeing a, what's called a pump and drain project. Bill Schuster, from an environmental engineering standpoint, what kind of track record do we have for methods of cleaning up dioxane contamination, maybe especially contamination this severe? Well, cleanup can be quite difficult just due to the, the physical and the chemical attributes of 1,4-dioxane, it, again, it travels with water and its spread can become legion very quickly. And so catching up with the contaminant plume, like the leading edge is, you know, making sure that the source is controlled. You know, pump and treat is probably one of the best known and most applied uh, engineering technologies to remediate sites like this. But I do want to point out that characterization of the geometry of the plume is very important in coming up with innovative and lower cost, 
but just as accurate methods to do so, has been addressed by Dr. Glenn Hood's lab here at Wayne State, where they actually used the ubiquitous grapevine to trace, you know, basically root uptake of contaminated water, or depending on where the plume is, they can actually detect it in the tissue of the plant and the insects that feed on that plant. So as opposed to dropping a well and establishing, you know, a monitoring well, we can perhaps use those sorts of results to define, well, maybe we need to put the wells here and not there and get a better idea, again, of where we need to leverage our treatment technologies. So actually using the science of how species are being affected to figure, I mean, this reminds me a little bit of COVID trackers, you know, trying to look at sewage water outflows. Exactly. And that's something I actually work in here in Detroit is uh, tracking different viral signatures in wastewater. But it's a form of, you know, the practice of ecotoxicology and applying it to this ongoing issue that we have in the United States and really any other country. We all have the same issue with these persistent chemicals being concentrated because of manufacturing and commerce in certain areas. You know, that's why we have a national priorities list that's actually pretty full at this point. We need to take a break. More on the Gelman plume in a minute. Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Support for the Stateside Podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. Bill, the fact that the national priorities list or the so-called Superfund sites is so backed up, this is something that the Biden administration tried to address recently with an infusion of cash to try to to try to get action more quickly. It's just a reminder that the Superfund status is not really the be-all and end-all or, you know, a push-button solution for these problems. Brian, can you tell us a little bit about what your understanding is of what's going to have to happen for this project to move forward, maybe when we could expect cleanup to begin by EPA's processes. I'm not an expert in the Superfund program, so I guess I'll share a little bit about what I know. I know that it's a long process and very deliberate. There's a process where they score the site and you need to meet um, a scoring metric in order to be considered for listing, and there's a public comment period. So you know, that's the portion of the process we're in right now. And I think we would anticipate that it would maybe take the better part of a year before the final listing takes place. Again, because there's a public comment component also that hasn't occurred yet. But with the understanding that it meets the metrics and it is listed, you know, there's an investigation portion, you know, that can take several years. So before actually any physical work, like additional remediation, 
potential additional pump and treat or other alternative technologies, you know, I think we're out many, many years. And I think we could estimate, you know, five to 10 years. It's a slow process for sure. Um, but my also my understanding is, is that we're obviously not going to cease the work that's happening currently on site. So all of the activities that are currently ongoing in attempt to sort of contain migration of the plume outside the existing delineation of the prohibition zone, which is the area where groundwater is has elevated concentrations and can't be used in the city, would all be maintained. So hopefully there would be sort of a seamless transition from the state oversight of the cleanup to the federal government at the appropriate time. Brian, I know that probably nobody wants action on this faster than the people who have been working on this issue for so many years. But the timeline that you've just sort of walked us through, does Ann Arbor's water supply have that kind of time before the plume reaches Barton Pond, which is the intake for the water system? That's the million-dollar question, I think, that's in front of us. We have just recently in the last year put in a, we're calling it a sentinel well, but it's basically a well between the leaning edge of the plume and Barton Pond to provide us early warning of migration. And we've put that in at the city's and our our customers' expense. And we anticipate that we may need to put in one or more additional wells. So, you know, we're not relying on that timeline um, that I just shared with you associated with the EPA program to ensure the city's water supply is protected. We're going to take what actions we need that are necessary to ensure that we have the, if we do need to intervene and, t- and, and respond, that it gives us the time to do that. Bill Schuster, assuming that things go forward as we believe they will, and the EPA does get involved in cleaning up the Gelman plume, what would be the advantages of that for the water supply compared with the level of remediation that's going on right now? What does what does the national priorities list bring to the table? Well, I just want to call out, Brian, the, the actions that you folks have taken, I believe, is emblematic or an example of how much of the burden actually falls on local communities and in the municipality itself to to provide data, to get things done and create a basis for, in this case, joining the national priority list. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that if the plume reaches and starts to mix with source waters for drinking water, we're into a whole different game at that point. And there are other methods of basically remediating or treating water and soil to get the one for dioxane out. But once it hits, it just it just becomes more and more complicated. You know, you compare that to a, a preventive precautionary principle type of strategy where we become more careful about where we're using these compounds. And of course, Gelman, I believe, started in 1966. These, you know, 1,4-dioxane was just seen as a commonly used solvent. And it just happened to work particularly well for what Gelman did. But as a society, as a culture, it really calls into environmental justice and how that's affecting you know, us, I was born in 1965, and we're seeing <laughs> the effects, you know, very strongly uh, throughout the generations. And, you know, this is a burden. One of the things that we really don't know yet is what metrics that the federal government would bring towards this cleanup. 
I think that's a little bit unclear. So it's a variable that I think would be is going to be important to know at the right time. But will they use a different standard than the state has used? I think that remains to be seen. Um, but also to answer your previous question, they do bring a tremendous amount of additional resources that probably are not available at the local and state level. Um, and if there was an emergency situation, they would be able to mobilize pretty quickly um, to help potentially address that. So that could be a positive impact of having access to the federal government. Right. Brian Steglitz, I wonder if if you could leave us with some thoughts on what this means for the city's future planning. I know this is this is a huge, huge thing to even have to consider from the city's perspective. Where are the priorities now in terms of planning? In terms of future planning, um, you know, we're right now looking at some significant um, improvements to our water treatment plant. We just finished um, a strategic plan and we're looking at potentially upwards of $100 million investment to replace, you know, our aging infrastructure. A portion of the plant was built in 1938. So while we're looking at sort of future planning for the next several generations of Ann Ar the Ann Arbor community around water, we would like, we need to have surety that the investments um, we make will stand the test of time and address, you know, the potential risks that the city faces to its water supply. So for, for us, it's really important to understand you know, is is the plume migrating um, towards our water supply? What can we do to potentially prevent that from happening? And in the worst case scenario, if we did have to deal with it, what does treatment look like? So well, those are all of the things that we're thinking about in terms of the long-term planning scenario for the city's water supply. Bill, Brian, thank you both very much for your work on this and for talking to us. Thank you, April. You're welcome. And that's the Stateside Podcast for today. I'm April Baer. You can find full Stateside episodes at michiganpublic.org. Today's podcast was produced by our pod editor, Rachel Ishikawa. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Ronia Kabansag, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our interns are Olivia Meradian and Lauren Neong. Our executive producer is Laura Weber Davis. Music for the pod comes from Blue Dot Sessions and from Audio Network. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.